0: Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. Did you know that as you age, your natural production of collagen declines? This results in fine lines and wrinkles, joint pain, dark circles under your eyes, and more. You see, collagen is like the glue that holds your body together. And luckily, there's an easy way to feed your body additional collagen. It's bone broth. Studies show consuming bone broth protein can boost metabolism, support gut health and digestion, reduce cellulite formation, can help grow healthy skin and nails, support joints and more. But if you've ever made bone broth, you know it's time consuming. And who really has the time to simmer bones for 48 hours? That's why I like to use bone broth protein powder. Simply mix a scoop with hot water add to a smoothie or even a baked dish, and reap all the benefits of collagen-rich protein in just 30 seconds a day. While most companies use the hides, or the skin of the animal, which are less nutrient-dense than the bones, I always prefer using bones, and that's why I love Paleo Valley bone broth protein because they use 100% grass-fed beef bones from cows that are never fed GMO grains or any grains, for that matter. They even test for over 40 pesticides to ensure this is the purest bone broth protein on the market. These bones are slow simmered to extract as much collagen protein as possible. They don't use any chemicals or solvents, just good old-fashioned bone broth that's then gently powdered. Now, when we think about bone broth, again, we think about the protein collagen, and there's several key amino acids in there, including glycine, proline, and hydroxyproline, and those help to, to reduce the appearance of fine lines and wrinkles and help reduce cellulite They're also critical for anti-aging as they help regenerate bones and help muscle and support heart health. Studies have shown eating bone broth soup on a regular basis can increase fullness, reduce your calorie intake, and lead to weight loss over time. And the amino acid glycine is really important for good sleep. In fact, a three-gram dose of glycine improves sleep by lowering body temperature and boosting serotonin levels, which is a key precursor to melatonin. And it does that without causing daytime drowsiness. Each serving of 100% grass fed beef bone broth protein contains 15 grams of collagen protein and 3.4 grams of glycine. So you get that critical amount. So to get the Paleo Valley bone broth protein, just go to paleovalley.com Forward slash DR and use the coupon code jockers to save 15% off your order today. You guys are gonna love this. So try it out today. Again, go to paleovalley.com forward slash drjockers. Use the coupon code Jockers at checkout to save 15% off your order. All right, guys. Well, welcome to the podcast. Really excited about today's topic. We're gonna talk about adrenal fatigue. We're gonna talk about mitochondrial dysfunction. You know, we hear this term adrenal fatigue all the time in uh, the natural health world. Does it really exist? Um, Is there really scientific evidence for it? We're going to talk about the mitochondria. I know you guys like hearing about mitochondria. I talk a lot about it. So we're going to go do a deep dive on that. We're going to talk about sleep optimization as well and red light therapy. So a lot of really good topics. And we have got Ari Witten on here. He is the owner of the Energy Blueprint. You can check out his website, theenergyblueprint.com. He's an expert when it comes to fatigue and energy. And he has a great podcast, the Energy Blueprint Podcast. And he's a best selling author of The Ultimate Guide to Red Light Therapy and Forever Fat Loss. And he's coming to us from Costa Rica, where he's surfing out there and spending time with his family. Ari, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me.
1: It's a pleasure to be
0: on. Absolutely. Well, I know you've done a lot of work in the area of energy fatigue and, uh, and adrenal fatigue in particular, um, which is really, you know, hot topic that in the natural health world people talk about and have been talking about now for many years. I, I originally got into natural health about 20 years ago and um you know, I was diagnosed with adrenal fatigue, just like probably everybody at some point. Um, and, you know, did things that, you know, I, I thought were supporting my, my adrenals and, 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 and it improved my health, right? I did get better. I, I improved my health. But, you know, more and more researchers coming out, we're really looking at this idea of adrenal fatigue and, and does it really exist? And I know you've done a lot of work in this area. So let's start with that. What are your thoughts on that idea of adrenal fatigue?
1: It's a big topic. Um, okay, so we're gonna we're gonna jump right in. So I've I've done um, pretty much what, what I believe is is the most extensive analysis of the literature on this topic that's been done by anyone at any point. Um, and the primary reason that I did this, ironically, is I was actually trying to prove that adrenal fatigue was real. Um, I was annoyed with the conventional medicine view on adrenal fatigue that. It wasn't just sort of pseudoscience and that didn't, didn't have any evidence to support it. it wasn't a real condition. And um, and I kind of set out with the intention that I was going to prove that this was a real thing because I've been in the natural health sort of realm, alternative medicine realm. Uh, since I was a little kid, I've been studying nutrition and exercise physiology since maybe 13 years old. So I grew up and all my mentors and all the people that I admired and, and read their books, they were all saying adrenal fatigue, this adrenal fatigue, that. So I spent probably the first 15 years of studying this stuff, also being convinced adrenal fatigue was totally real. I set out with the intention to prove it. And um, and then I started encountering all these, these studies. Well, first of all, I will say, if you go on Google Scholar or PubMed and try to find anything on adrenal fatigue, almost nothing comes up. So that was my first cue that yeah. something was odd here because you have, you know, all, all these people talking about adrenal fatigue, thousands of articles online, books being written about it, a million videos on YouTube, all these people talking about adrenal fatigue. But when you go on PubMed and you look up any medical condition, even something super obscure, some random autoimmune disease that afflicts 0.0001% of the population you can find dozens or hundreds or thousands of, of articles on it. But if you type in adrenal fatigue, you get almost nothing. Yeah. And, and so I was like, okay, that that's odd. Um, and then I figured out that there was actually research there, but it required digging into all kinds of other terms. So if you, if you would put in stress and cortisol, burnout syndrome is one of the things that is, is a, defined syndrome uh, or clinical burnout, it's also called. Um, There's another syndrome called vital exhaustion. There's chronic fatigue syndrome. There's fibromyalgia. Um, There's stress-related exhaustion disorder. So I started stumbling across all these terms that if you you did input them, then you could find stuff and you could find specifically studies that had measured those various kinds of stress-related fatigue and cortisol, and HPA axis dysfunction. That's hypothalamic, pituitary adrenal axis dysfunction for, for people listening. And, um, and I was like, okay, awesome. I finally found the research that will prove that this is a real thing. And as I started digging into that research, I would find a study here or two that would say one thing. And then the next study I'd look at would say the opposite. And then the next day I would look at would find no effect whatsoever. And, and the gist of those studies were essentially... Take a group of people with stress-related exhaustion or burnout syndrome or clinical burnout, and get an, an equivalent group of the same-aged people in, you know, the same gender and other confounding variables controlled for, um, like smoking and exercise and all that kind of stuff. And um, but they're healthy people with no symptoms and no stress-related exhaustion, and then see if there's any difference in cortisol or HPA axis function. It's a very, very simple, very direct way of testing whether adrenal fatigue is a real thing. And those studies do exist. And I found after literally about a year of doing nothing but this project, I found uh, 57 or 59 studies that had tested that. And then another 20 or so systematic reviews where other researchers had compiled all the literature on, let's say, clinical Mm -hmm. burnout or, or vital or stress related exhaustion disorder or chronic fatigue syndrome. And, and cortisol specifically. And um, I, I compiled all of them. There was so much conflicting research that I basically just said, you know what, I'm trying to make sense of this and there's no consistency in these research findings. So I'm just going to lay out all of the evidence, every single study that's ever been done on this topic and just see what it all says. And so I literally did that and I published that online uh, for anybody who wants to read it, including screenshots of the actual cortisol graphs mm. between the two yep. groups. And the gist of it is this. Um, let me see if I can just pull up the actual numbers here. I have. I want to make sure
0: I get the actual numbers totally correct. Because when you think about the term adrenal fatigue, you would think the adrenals are not putting out enough stress hormone, like enough cortisol. So
1: uh-huh. the idea
0: there would be that you have low, chronically low cortisol,
1: Right. Yeah. So I took that for granted. Let's say basically the gist of adrenal fatigue is with chronic stress, or let me step back, stress causes the body to secrete stress hormones, cortisol being a primary one of those. Okay. With chronic stress, the idea is that uh, chronic stress would eventually just kind of tax and tax and tax and eventually wear out the adrenal glands and, and deplete the supplies of cortisol and or just tax the adrenal glands so they can't produce enough cortisol. And therefore, you'd eventually end up with enough chronic extreme stress. You'd eventually end up with low cortisol levels. So there are various people with various models of adrenal fatigue, three phases, five phases. I've seen eight phases. Um, the The short of it is none of that has any research to support it. It's all just made up stuff that people have made up these distinct phases. The research absolutely unequivocally does not support it. And uh, the, the, there was 59 studies in total that I found that did that kind of, of research. Um, 15 of those 59 gave evidence for slightly lower morning cortisol levels in people with stress-related exhaustion or mm-hmm. fatigue. 11 of the studies gave evidence of the exact opposite finding. Mm-hmm. And then 33 of them found zero detectable difference in cortisol levels or HPA axis function between the groups that had full-blown burnout syndrome or stress-related exhaustion disorder or chronic fatigue syndrome versus normal healthy people without any of those symptoms. So in other words, the vast majority of the research found no link whatsoever between cortisol and those symptoms. So the the gist of this and I could talk to you for 5 hours about all the details yeah. of all this research and all the nuances of it but the, the the very short summary of it is that there is no compelling scientific argument for adrenal function or HPA axis function or cortisol levels being the primary cause or mediator of these symptoms that are associated with stress related exhaustion or fatigue. Yeah. So yeah. If I can, if I can rephrase that, adrenal fatigue is a myth, and the idea that the primary cause of fatigue and low energy levels is adrenal function
0: and cortisol levels is a myth that is not supported by the evidence. Right, and so, and and what's the role of neural inflammation? You know, because we talked about the hypothalamic, uh, pituitary, adrenal axis, and. Is there, so for some individuals, they may have low cortisol, other individuals, they may have high cortisol. And like you said, <clears throat> there's no compelling research saying everybody that suffers with these issues deals with either one of them. You could have normal cortisol levels, but is there a link with neural inflammation, just basically inflammation impacting the hypothalamus, pituitary gland, and how that could play a role with fatigue that somebody may be dealing with?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, there is some research on that, especially in chronic fatigue syndrome. There's been some uh, fMRI scans uh, that have, and, and various measurements of biomarkers in the brain and so on, that have found um, elevated levels of cytokines and elevated levels of inflammation in certain key areas of the brain. So that has absolutely been associated with chronic fatigue syndrome in particular. I don't believe it's been studied at all in the context of other conditions like stress related exhaustion or burnout syndrome. Um, but it has been studied in that context and there is a link. So at least some subset of people have neuroinflammation and, um, and there's compelling reasons why that can play a role in, uh, in causing fatigue symptoms. Um, inflammation itself is a trigger of mitochondrial shutdown. Mitochondria are our energy generators in, in our cells. Um, and, Elevated levels of inflammatory cytokines literally is a trigger for mitochondria to turn down energy production. So anytime there is a presence of high levels of inflammation, in general, you're going to see a a trend for
0: lower levels of energy. That makes sense. And so that really parlays into the next topic there, which is mitochondrial health. You mentioned how mitochondria, I mean, just to summarize for the audience, there, there are these these organelles that that are within the cell, and we have thousands of them. Um, and you may know the exact number. I believe brain cells have like ten thousand mitochondria per cell. Um, heart, I believe, is five thousand. Your normal muscle cells, is like one to two thousand mitochondria per cell. And Correct me if I'm wrong. That's just what I've heard. Yeah, I,
1: I think there's a little bit of a range, but I think that's yeah, for, yeah, somewhere
0: in that that range. And so basically, you know, these are what produce energy within every single cell. And you're only going to be as healthy as your mitochondria. And, you know, this idea of neural fatigue, like we just talked about, or neural inflammation, if you've got 10,000 mitochondria per cell in your neurons, then um, that inflammation impacting them, obviously, you're now going to start to have have effects and fatigue is one of those. So what are things that you talked about inflammation brings down mitochondrial function? What are other things that bring down mitochondrial function that could be contributors to fatigue? Yeah. Well, let's, let's step back for a minute and explain Mm -hmm. some basics of mitochondria. When most people talk about
1: mitochondria, they like to go immediately into like the biochemistry and the bioenergetic side of it and electron transfer and CoQ10 does this and, you know, Mm -hmm. cytochrome C and, um, and, and, you know, complex one and complex two and complex three and all these kinds of things. And then what happens with the Krebs cycle and all these kinds of things, there's something that's lost when, it's, it's talked about through that lens, which is something very fundamental and one of the biggest discoveries uh, I think in health science in the last 50 years, which is the work of dr. Robert navio and he has written a seminal paper on what he termed the cell danger response
0: yeah
1: and the cell danger response fundamentally has reconceptualized mitochondria. So mitochondria used to be thought, like when we were in high school and, and college biology courses, it was always taught the mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. Right. they are energy generators and like they're taught, they're talked about from this perspective, like all they really do is they just sort of take in carbs and fats and then pump out ATP, pump out mm-hmm. cellular energy. And it's, it's almost like, oh, well, all you got to do is just pump in carbs and fats, and then they'll just pump out energy. You know, they're just sort of these mindless energy generators. And uh, Dr. Robert Naviot's work has, has turned that on its head and has actually reconceptualized mitochondria as not just these peripheral organelles of the cell that are generating energy mindlessly, but actually as the central hub of our metabolism and as energy regulators and as Mm. cell danger sensors. So it turns out that in addition to generating energy, mitochondria have this other role that is equally as important as environmental sensors. And their job is to pick up on signals of what is going on in the environment and determine whether or not to produce energy. Mm. Okay. So it, it's not just like you take your CoQ10 and you take your vitamin yeah. D and, and, and get your carbs and your ketones and, yeah. and fats and all those things, and then mitochondria just work. They're environmental sensors, and they're picking up on signals from the environment to determine whether or not it's safe to produce lots of energy, or if there are lots of danger signals or stressors present, mitochondria will shift out of energy mode into a uh, into basically cell danger mode, okay? So you have to think of mitochondria as having these two modes of either energy mode, which Dr. Robert Navio calls peacetime metabolism or wartime metabolism, which is also cell danger mode, okay? Mm. And to the degree that your mitochondria are picking up on um, danger signals or stress signals in the body and in the environment, those mitochondria are going to switch from energy mode more towards wartime metabolism. And these are two sides of the same coin. So mitochondria cannot be in both at the same time. To the degree they're picking up those danger signals, they turn off energy production and shift into defense mode. So that's the big key to understand about mitochondria is they're not it's wrong to talk about them as just like one of 20 things that are important to energy and health. Yeah. They, they, mm-hmm. they're, they're a central hub of the metabolism, and they are actually regulating energy production mm-hmm. at the cellular level.
0: Yeah, now when they go in defense mode and <clears throat> they're reducing the amount of energy they're producing, are they doing that to, produ- to reduce the overall oxidative stress in the cell? Because obviously a byproduct of metabolism is production of free radicals. Is that the thinking there, or why why would they down-regulate energy production, or are they trying to get us to hibernate? Like, what 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 is the the idea there?
1: Yeah, good question. Well, sometimes they go into defense mode and they actually produce more free radicals, right? Mm. So let's say in the context of uh, an infection. This is a good example yeah. to illustrate the like a point. A viral infection in the cell. In a, in the context of a viral infection, they'll shut cells will shut down energy production. Mm and it's not black or white, it's obviously you can't turn it off completely, but they'll decrease energy production and shift resources more towards production of free radicals, literally
0: to try to kill off the threat. Okay, Um, Like a classic Epstein-Barr virus, right? One of the classic symptoms is fatigue. Exactly right. So
1: that's the next point. So and, and chronic is a little bit more difficult, but let's say in the context of an acute infection, yeah. what's one of the classic symptoms of, let's say you get a cold, you get a flu. Right. What, one of the classic symptoms is, of course, you feel less energy than you normally would. And that is literally the cell danger response mm-hmm. happening on a subjective level that you can actually feel. So why does your body do that? Why does your body make you feel fatigued um, when you get an infection, it also happens, by the way, when you get an injury, like a serious injury, those elevated inflammatory cytokines in the blood will also turn down energy production at the mitochondrial level. So like, why would the body be designed to lower physical energy levels in response to an infection or a physical injury or something like that? And the answer is basically conservation of resources. If you're severely injured or you are... Um, you've got a serious infection, you don't want to be going out and running all day and expending lots of energy. Your body designed you in order to, your body is designed, I should say, to specifically suppress energy levels in the context of those danger signals being present so that more of your overall body's resources can go to fending off the danger, fending off the threat or healing the injury and so on.
0: Yeah, to summarize, so our systems, different systems of our body are competing for energy. Digestive system, we need a lot of energy for that. We need a lot of energy for immune regulation. We need a lot of energy for just kinesthetic movement, right? So muscle movement for thinking. Um, And so basically when we have an active infection, we're trying to put all that energy into kind of that immune regulation, immune activation. That's also oftentimes why we lose our, our appetite or we get nauseous too, Because our body is saying, hey, we don't want to put energy into digestion. Mm -hmm.
1: Yep, exactly right. So you you asked me before, and forgive my kind of jumping back to explain the big picture, but you asked me before what specific things will trigger that. Right. And there's many, many different things that can trigger it. So anything that produces elevated levels of inflammatory cytokines will do it. So what does that? Well, lots of things do it. Um, A physical injury is one thing. An infection is one thing. Two two things we just mentioned, chronic stress, psychological stress will do it. Um, Poor diet will do it. Poor gut health will do it in a massive way. If you start to increase gut permeability and you have LPS, lipopolysaccharides or endotoxin leaking from your gut into your bloodstream, or you have undigested food particles that are going into your bloodstream, um, all of that's going to trigger immune activity and elevated cytokines. If you are overweight, that the literally the yeah. excess body fat mm-hmm. tissue on your your body produces adipokines. It produces yeah. inflammatory cytokines constantly, um, essentially mimicking a state of sickness or um, or uh, injury. So, yeah. particularly the, that visceral fat that's deep on, around the organs. Yeah. Exactly. So that's mimicking at at the brain level. It's literally sending a signal to your brain to initiate something called sickness behavior. And our brain also regulates some of those symptoms and to your mitochondria to shut down mitochondria. That LPS from the gut, if you have that leaking from the gut, LPS has been proven to shut down and damage mitochondria, decreasing energy levels, Um, alcohol consumption, cigarette consumption, obviously. Um, psychological stress itself. There's a field called mitochondrial psychobiology where they've shown that psychological stress literally shuts down and damages mitochondrial function within a matter of seconds. Mm-hmm. So we, we know that intense psychological stress can cause it. Yeah. Um, toxins are a big cause of mitochondrial dysfunction. There's lots of different kinds of toxins, for example, heavy metals, um, BPA, a number of other things mm-hmm. that have been proven to decrease uh, mitochondrial energy production and um, sleep and circadian rhythm is a big one, and we could we could jump in and talk about lots of details of why. But that's sleep and circadian rhythm is critical for mitochondrial health, and um, and if you're not getting enough sleep or you have poor circadian rhythm habits, that's a big trigger for mitochondrial dysfunction and damage as well.
0: Yeah, I want to come back to sleep now. What is What's the impact of, let's say, chronic sympathetic nervous system activation, poor vagal tone, um, on overall mitochondrial health?
1: Well, I don't know that someone can draw a link specifically with, like, from decreased vagal tone direct to mitochondria. Mm-hmm. But those two things: increased sympathetic activation, decreased vagal yeah. tone, in in tandem with other issues that are going on in the context of psychological stress. So for Mm -hmm. example, you, you also have maybe elevated cortisol, you have elevated epinephrine. Um, There's other changes in in various hormones that are taking place. And there's probably a number of other signaling pathways as well. Um, Because if you think about it, um, the, I just described that field of mitochondrial psychobiology. Yeah. Where they, they they've done experiments where, for example, they they one interesting study is they they've put people in a situation of um, public speaking, and you know most people have a right. fear of public speaking. They have more fear of public speaking than than yeah. fear of dying, right? Right. And um, in this particular experiment, it was really interesting. They had people not only public speak but they, cre- they fabricated all of these accusations against the person, and they had a number of, of other people kind of spouting off all these accusations and personal attacks on the person. And then the person on stage had to defend themselves against all of these false accusations. Hmm. And so you kind of had double stress of, of yeah. public speaking plus all these false accusations <laughs> that you have to defend yourself against. And they literally showed... Um, the presence of mitochondrial DNA floating around in the bloodstream um, within a matter of minutes in response to that. And and if you think about most hormones take between um, usually hours to days to weeks to really have a significant effect. Um, So there's other signaling cascades that are happening on a a much, much faster time scale, Um, neurological or other molecules floating around in the bloodstream but, and, and just to tie a couple points in, mitochondrial DNA should be inside of your cells, inside of your mitochondria, not floating around in your bloodstream.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, does that mean that they're breaking down, being right. excreted by the cells? Yes. And, and part of Dr. Robert Navio's work with cell danger response is actually
1: he talks about something called purinergic signaling. And it is the presence of, ATP and ADP molecules, which are like mitochondrial DNA, supposed Mm -hmm. to be inside of the cell. Yeah. Presence of those things in the bloodstream, okay? And what happens when those molecules enter the bloodstream is that is a sign that the body is under stress, under attack by Mm -hmm. something. And and it turns out we have receptors throughout the body that detect the presence of those energy molecules floating around Mm -hmm. in the blood, and mitochondrial DNA floating around in the blood. And that is actually a signal to the rest of the cells throughout the body that it's under attack and that this is how, for example, if an infection starts here, it can trigger a cascade throughout your whole body that causes a systemic response of cell danger response and decreasing energy level through the whole whole body. Um, So those molecules from the mitochondria are again supposed to be inside the cell, not floating around the blood, and they, they are actually a uh, essentially a danger signaling molecule, so that happens within seconds or minutes of being exposed to psychological stress, and um, is you know so you asked about sympathetic activation and vagal nerve tone is are those the mediating factors? Well, they go along with it and they certainly cause other problems, you know, chronic sympathetic overactivity and poor vagal tone cause all kinds of other issues. Yeah. But one of the more, the most fundamental, the first things that happen in response to psychological stress is not necessarily, you know, chronic poor vagal tone or chronic sympathetic overactivation. It's almost an almost immediate mitochondrial shutdown and signaling Throughout the body of those danger signals
0: from inside of the cell right so that's the immediate effect and then over time uh you have this vicious cycle and that can develop the poor vagal tone which i mean the vagus nerve also there's mitochondria obviously within the nerves so if they're breaking down they're not going to be able to be activated effectively and uh and so that can cause you know just again pouring into this vicious cycle causing worsening and worsening issues I just want to interrupt this podcast and take a moment and tell you about the importance of electrolytes. We all need electrolytes in order to produce energy in order for our nervous system to function well on a daily basis. And most people are just not getting enough electrolytes, especially when they start on a low carb, ketogenic style diet, or if they're doing intermittent fasting. And this is because when you go on a low carb diet, or if you're practicing fasting, you get a big drop in insulin. And insulin's job is to actually cause you to retain sodium and other electrolytes. And so you actually start urinating them out. So when you're on a low carb diet, you're burning fat for fuel, but you need more electrolytes. In fact, there's a condition called the keto flu. And this is where people feel really bad when they start on a low-carb keto-style diet or if they start doing intermittent fasting and they don't have the electrolytes to support them. This is why I'm a huge fan of Element. It's L-M-N-T, It's the name of the company. And they contain a science-backed electrolyte ratio. That means 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium, No sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, none of that stuff. You know, the average sports drink has 260 milligrams of sodium, that's not enough. 65 milligrams of potassium, that's a really low amount. They don't have magnesium, and the average sports drink has 29 grams of sugar. That's gonna spike your blood sugar and your insulin levels. Element, again, has a 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. No sugar. It's flavored with stevia. And right now, as a member of our community, Element has a very special offer for you. You can get a free sample pack of seven different packets of each flavor. They have great flavors. Citrus, raspberry, watermelon, orange. Again, all flavored with stevia, all-natural sweetener. It's not going to impact your blood sugar. They also have an unflavored. So if you're not into that or if you don't do well with stevia, you get the unflavored as well. But you can get the sample pack now for free and you only cover the cost of shipping, which is roughly $5. Just go to the site, drinkelement.com/ so drink, forward slash Dr. Jockers. Again, that's drinklmnt.com forward slash drjockers to get your free sample pack of Element. Again, Element is a healthy alternative to sugary electrolyte drinks. Each grab and go stick pack replaces essential electrolytes with no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, or any other junk. Guys, try this out. You're going to see a big jump in your energy and your performance. I mean, if you're a high-level athlete, you need electrolytes, try this out today. Now, I wanted to circle back to sleep, but before we do that, let's talk a little bit about nutrition. Uh, this is a functional nutrition podcast. So what are some of the best nutrition tips to support mitochondrial health?
1: Oh, there's so
2: many. Um, whew, okay. Well, we could talk about supplements. We could talk about how nutrition ties into circadian rhythm. We could talk about gut health. I'm sure you've probably done that one to death. Um, here's, here's a couple of nice ones for you. So um, one of the most important things with mitochondria is protecting the membranes from damage and mm-hmm. healing uh, damaged cell membranes, damaged mitochondrial membranes. Um, those membranes of mitochondria are extremely susceptible to damage. Mm -hmm. Partly because the mitochondria are themselves producing free radicals or reactive oxygen species all the time. And if those mitochondria are under attack by various stressors um, and are being shut down or damaged, they produce more free radicals. And then the mitochondrial membranes get damaged, and the more they get damaged, the more the mitochondria dysfunctions and produces yeah. even more free radicals. Right, so there's kind of a vicious cycle that takes place. So, repairing and protecting mitochondrial membranes is is a big key. Um, one of the, the most important things to do there is uh, phospholipids. So we we get certain phospholipids in the diet, uh, things like phosphatidylcholine, phosphatidylserine, phosphatidylinositol. And a few others. Those things make up those phospholipid membranes. Yeah, there's uh, a supplement called NT Factor. It's a patented um, phospholipid formula that's highly digestible and getting those phospholipids digested in the, into the cells intact. And um, it's it's one of the it's one of the compounds with very super impressive research that I actually put it into one of my supplement formulas. And that compound. Um, There's a a well-known paper by a researcher called Garth Nicholson, and he published a paper called Lipid Replacement Therapy, and it's literally replacing the, the damaged phospholipids in membranes with new healthy phospholipids. And There's research on this formula, NT factors. There's at least seven or eight studies in the context of chronic fatigue of various kinds, so chronic fatigue, uh, syndrome, chronic fatigue associated with obesity, chronic fatigue associated with uh, old age, um, with Gulf War illness, with Lyme disease, and several others. And just that one compound by itself has been shown to give 30, 35, 40% improvements in energy levels within a matter mm-hmm. of weeks. Okay. And it's
0: basically like a form of phosphatidylcholine. It's many different phospholipids. serine all the different uh ps or basically phosphatidyl yeah uh elements yeah. yeah so so that's one another great tip and, and where do we normally get those sort of compounds in our diet things like eggs mm-hmm. sunflower like nuts and seeds are we yeah. getting it from that like just on a normal diet um, not a ther- maybe not a therapeutic level, but obviously we're we're getting these because we're replacing those se- those uh, those membranes on a regular basis. we are mm-hmm. some of the best food sources?
2: Yeah, basically a lot of animal foods, nuts and seeds. Mm-hmm. Um, those are probably the best sources. Yeah, right? wild caught fish, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But I, I it does appear that there's something unique about this particular patented formula. It's yeah. Awesome in a certain way that these phospholipids are getting absorbed more back mm-hmm. into the body. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's something that seems to be somewhat
0: um, unique about it. Yeah, yeah. The delivery method or something uh, along those lines.
2: Yeah. And I've spent some time digging into the literature to try mm-hmm. to find out more about how phospholipids are digested yeah. food sources, to try to find out exactly what that is. And it's, and it's not totally clear to me mm. uh, based on the literature that I've seen thus far. Uh, but what you can't really argue with is the studies on it that have been done in chronic fatigue people with yeah. chronic fatigue showing massive improvements within a matter mm. of four or eight weeks. So right. that's that's one great tip. And then another one is astaxanthin, mm. and astaxanthin is a carotenoid pigment that is found in it's found in a lot of different stuff. It originally comes from an algae in the ocean, then yeah. it's consumed by krill in the oceans, and then it accumulates up the food chain. Uh, in other organisms. So it's found in, for example, shrimp in small amounts, and that's the pink pigment. And then it's found in salmon. Um, that, And that's what causes the pink pigment in salmon, at least wild salmon, not farm-raised. <clears throat> and it's even the pigment that causes flamingos, believe it or not, to be mm, pink. Right. Uh, so astaxanthin has this really unique ability to actually embed itself in our tissues in such large amounts that it literally turns the flesh of salmon pink. So that astaxanthin um, has a very unique chemical structure to it as, as an antioxidant. And in comparison to other antioxidants, so let's say like vitamin E is really good about um, penetrating through mitoc- through membranes and, and, and kind of meshing itself in fatty areas. Um, And it's hydrophobic, so it moves away from water. Vitamin C is the opposite. Vitamin C stays in water. It's really bad about getting in or out of membrane components. Um, And then other carotenoids have some various other functions. They might embed themselves in the outer or inner membrane. Astaxanthin has this really unique chemical structure that actually allows it to embed itself across mitochondrial membranes. So it literally is through the whole mitochondrial membrane on the outer and inner portion of it. And in so doing, stabilizes that mitochondrial membrane and protects it from damage. And there's actually studies to show that astaxanthin stabilizes uh, mitochondrial membranes and enhances mitochondrial energy production and decreases oxidative stress at the mitochondrial level. Um, So really unique compound and has a ton of research, neuroprotection, um, enhancing endurance, and sports performance and has this
0: really unique benefit of stabilizing and protecting mitochondria. So yeah and you know when I think about like a uh, salmon are, are I believe the only species of fish that swims upstream against the current and it can jump out of the water 10 20 feet in the air I mean you think about the amount of mitochondrial energy production mm-hmm. in order to be able to do that and obviously yeah. it's got the long chain omega-3s along with the astaxanthin as kind of the the two probably most well studied nutrients in there helping uh, helping it helping support that. Yeah, absolutely.
2: So yeah, th- those are a couple tips and, and we can dive deeper in this. We could talk about the, um, there's a lot of other stuff. We could talk about the circadian rhythm side of, of nutrition, or we can jump on to another topic wherever you want to go.
0: Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about deep sleep and the importance of deep sleep and how much should we be looking to get to, um, you know, I track my sleep with the aura ring and, uh, what, what should somebody be looking at when it comes to improving their deep sleep and their REM as well?
2: Yeah. I don't like to prescribe hours of sleep so much. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like to focus on implementing the habits, especially circadian rhythm. Yeah. Enhancing habits. And once those are in place, then one of the rules that should be implemented is sleep as long as your body needs to sleep. So what is your natural wake up time? don't use an alarm clock don't yeah. wake up don't force your body to wake up um, and do whatever you need to do with your bedtime to make sure that you're not forcing your body to get up in the morning and you're definitely not waking mm. up with an alarm clock mid-sleep cycle right? right so you should wake up when your body is ready to wake up and that means that you have to necessarily you have to control the other side of things the, the all the habits around bedtime and yeah and organization of, of of sleeping and wake times. So one of the big tips is this is like kind of a common sense one that's so simple that it has people have a tendency to overlook it, but it's it's absolutely vitally important. And that is just consistency of sleep and wake times. So going to bed and waking up at the same time right every day of the week. Okay. And it doesn't have to be within like on the minute, but it should be not more than like half an hour variation yeah and people have big jumps in that and people have Mm -hmm. you know you see a lot of people that are going to bed at you know 11 or midnight on weekdays and then waking up at 5 30 and then on weekends uh you know they'll they'll sleep in and sleep three hours longer than they normally would on weekdays that's a huge problem and that's a sign of dysfunction Mm -hmm. Um, that's a sign that that that's a problem that will inevitably catch up to you now, one of the, the other aspects. So there's two tips embedded in what I just said. So, um, consistency of sleep and wake times and no alarm clock. Okay. And if you just do those two things that takes care of a lot already. Now, another aspect of this, that's really critical to understand is the role of melatonin. So melatonin, everybody knows, oh, melatonin, that's a sleep hormone. Here's what most people don't know. Melatonin is a mitochondrial hormone. Melatonin is one of the most powerful protectors, maybe the most powerful potent antioxidant at the mitochondrial level to protect your mitochondria from from damage. And every night while you sleep, you're supposed to have a big surge of melatonin throughout the night. It goes and infuses itself into your mitochondria and protects them from damage and literally helps them recharge and repair during the night and sleep. Now, consider this. Um, there's research showing that just standard room light in a person's home suppresses melatonin levels in the hours before bed by between 50 to 70%. Wow! So we're talking about a massive reduction And huge the key hormone that is protecting your mitochondria and helping them recharge and repair each night, we're decreasing that by fifty to seventy percent every single night. So what happens if you live in a society where you're you're suppressing that hormone by fifty to seventy percent every night for years for decades? Well, do you think that that damage at the mitochondrial level eventually accumulates and and like leads to something bad? Yeah, absolutely. Think that's a contributor to yeah. fatigue? Too For sure it is. So um, that being mindful of light exposure habits mm. and getting a big, big melatonin surge every night is critical. So maximizing that melatonin by controlling the light inputs into your body. So there's a number of, of strategies around that. People have probably heard of wearing blue blockers. Mm-hmm. I recommend blue and blue yeah. and green blockers. Get the, the FLUX or the iris software in your computer. Mm-hmm. Um, change the lighting in your home to incandescence, dim incandescence yeah. below eye level. Um, so you, instead of like ceiling lights, change to like, like a lamp. My cord is long enough. I can show you something like simple yeah. little you know desk lamps like this with an incandescent bulb. I really like the Edison-style bulbs. Um, yeah. And they,
0: they come off like more like a red. Mostly exactly. like red or kind of orange hue rather than kind of the real white type of lighting that's exactly right so they mimic the spectrum of fire light. Yeah.
2: and firelight is predominantly yellow orange red yeah. and also infrared with very little blue and right. that is key because blue and green wavelengths are the predominant wavelengths that suppress melatonin levels that mm. enter your eyes and feed back into that circadian clock in the brain and Give that part of the brain the signal it's daytime the time to be awake alert active energetic so most people have fluorescence or and leds in their home lighting that are super rich in the blues and the yeah. greens and that's that's suppressing melatonin so yeah, this yeah. is a super simple trick and again you want it ideally below eye level so on your desk rather than overhead lighting and that is a signal that to mimic firelight and that's a signal that your brain interprets as Okay, it's, it's nighttime, it's the time for rest, relaxation, rejuvenation, and sleep, not daytime and yeah. time to be awake, alert, active, energetic. So that's a key element. Um, get, you have to, to wear those blue blockers and minimize all the different sources of this from, from computers, from phones, from indoor lighting, from car lighting, you know that, that kind of thing, um, TVs and so on. Um, so the problem with the F Lux and the Iris is we don't have the ability to install those things on our TV or in our
0: home, right? right? So we have to make yeah. adjustments as well. But you can wear the, the glasses if you're <clears throat> watching that to help block that out. That's right.
2: The other challenge, though, even with that, without changing home lighting, is um, what do a lot of people do though? Wear their glasses for an hour, then they go in their bathroom and they switch on the light. Have a bright yeah. some lights. Yeah, bright exactly. In the and the thing about circadian rhythm is it literally just a couple
0: seconds of exposure yeah. to bright light is enough to throw off the circadian rhythm. Yeah, so yeah it's you know, a really good idea to get used to doing things in the dark. Mm-hmm. You know, just kind of developing the kinesthetic awareness to where you can kind of move around and, and you know, almost improving your night vision too. Yes, uh, exactly. Where really you get super dim, low wattage, you know, plug in
2: red, red bulbs, yeah. red incandescents or just regular very dim, incandescent bulbs, um, and put those in your bathroom and get used to preparing for bed in your bathroom, brushing your teeth, taking a shower and very dim, yeah. you know, low wattage, orange or red light as opposed yeah. to bright, typical bathroom lights. So uh, those things are critical. Another key fact, a key factor is the morning bright light exposure and then also bright light exposure throughout the day. This is a really important yeah. thing that a lot of people are unaware of but the differential between the total amount of bright light exposure and the intensity of the bright light exposure that you get throughout the day versus the, the exposure that you're getting at night in the hours before bed is a key signal to your circadian clock to know when it's day, what when it's day right. and when it's night. And getting lots and lots of bright light exposure at a high intensity, outdoor light in particular, um, throughout the day as much as possible. Actually theres there's research out of Japan showing that it decreases the sensitivity of the, the circadian clock in the brain to being to, to suppress melatonin from artificial light exposure in the hours before. Mm. Bed. So in, yeah. in, in other words, um, the more bright light you get during the day, the less likely you are to have melatonin suppression from light in the evenings before bed. Um, and if you think about what most people are doing, most people are in indoor environments throughout the day yeah. in typically relatively dim indoor environments compared to the intensity of outdoor light, which is a hundred or a thousand fold greater. And, uh, and then at night, in the evening, they're still in indoor environments with LED or fluorescent bulbs and, you know, with computer and phone light and TV light, you know, blaring into their face. And there's almost no differential between the amount of the light that they're getting during the day and the light they're getting at night. So how can you expect circadian clock in your brain that is, it knows the difference between day and night based on light signals to, to know how to regulate all of these different hormones and neurotransmitters and mitochondrial function? You have to give it that differential of light yeah. between day and night for it to work properly. So that, that circadian clock, that circadian system is vital for energy regulation, it's regulating many different. It impacts on many different neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin, something called a rexin, which regulates wakefulness, um, and it's it's simultaneously affecting many different hormones, so cortisol, testosterone, um, thyroid hormone. Many of these things follow a, a diurnal curve that are impacted heavily by the health of our circadian rhythm. And a lot of people think about you know hormones and neurotransmitters as these like distinct things that are separate from nutrition and lifestyle but they're intimately intertwined yeah. with your nutrition lifestyle. So people think, "Oh, you know, my cortisol is off. What do I need to do to fix my cortisol? I need to take some cortisol specific supplements or some testosterone specific supplements." Well, no, you need to fix the systems in your body that regulate the curves of of those hormones and those neurotransmitters first and foremost before trying anything beyond that you got to fix the yeah. foundation before you do a, the specialty stuff
0: so yeah and the foundation is really getting that circadian rhythm back mm-hmm. in balance yeah so that optimizing your circadian rhythm
2: by optimizing the light inputs mm-hmm. in tandem with consistency of sleep and wake set schedules in tandem with getting rid of your alarm clock and making sure that you're going to bed early enough that you can wake at yeah. the appropriate time without an alarm clock just those things itself, if you just implemented those and you took nothing else away from this interview, just those things alone would literally add years to your life and dramatically decrease your risk of cancer and heart
0: disease and, uh, mm. and, and neurological disease and chronic fatigue. Um, I'm very, very sensitive to light. So when the light starts coming in, Like This time of year in the summer, I love it because I naturally wake up early. It's just really easy for me. I have tons of energy in the morning. I'm super light sensitive, even though I wear an eye mask and have all the blinds closed. Just a little bit of light in the room. I wake up. I've got energy. I feel a lot of wakefulness. Um, And if I have a lot of light on at night, I do not sleep well. I see big changes in my heart rate variability, deep sleep, REM. So we dim all the lights, blue light blocking glasses. I'm very, very light sensitive with it. And uh, by controlling that, it really makes a big impact uh, on my daily energy. So everything you're saying is right on from my own personal experience and what I've noticed.
1: 100%. And actually the mark of having a strong circadian rhythm is that sensitivity to light. In people who have a crappy circadian rhythm, they lose that that hypersensitivity to light signals. So that's a really good sign, what you said. And- yeah it, it not only makes a big difference to energy but to brain function and productivity and longevity this is a huge factor in longevity but when it comes to energy it's it's critical to understand that energy and sleep and circadian rhythm are two sides of the same coin and you you can't have one without the other and I, I this is to the to the degree that I literally think um, Poor circadian rhythm habits are the the number one most common cause of yeah. of fatigue issues of low energy issues. Is yeah. people simply have are just suffering the consequences of a chronically disrupted circadian rhythm and sleep routine.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And when we think about deep sleep. Not only are we getting the melatonin, like you were talking about, really protecting and helping regenerate the mitochondria, but also you have activation of the glymphatic system. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Yeah, absolutely.
1: So you know, kind of like the, the mitochondria every night are, are regenerating themselves. Yeah. Okay. And there, there's a process called mitophagy. That's the equivalent of autophagy. Mm-hmm. That is essentially a cleaning out of junk. It's a, it's a breaking down of damaged and dysfunctional cell parts and of mitochondrial parts and a rebuilding of new healthy mitochondria. And that, that process of Destruction and rebuilding, regeneration happens at night. The same kind of thing happens in the brain. I mean, the same thing actually does happen in the brain in the sense of autophagy and mitophagy, um, which are critical to have enough hours of deep regenerative sleep and to have the melatonin present and the right hormonal rhythm present. And all of those things are dependent on implementing those strategies that, that I was just talking about. But the brain also has this other way of cleaning itself out. So um, for a long time, it was thought that the brain had no lymphatic system. And just uh, a yeah. few years ago, it was discovered, oh, actually, it turns out the brain does have a lymphatic system. It's just structured a bit differently than it is throughout the rest of the body. And they, because it happens primarily as a result of glial cells in the brain, they termed it this glymphatic system. But essentially, what it is, is uh, brainwashing. Not in the sense of the way we typically yeah. use that term of like <laughs> you know, being indoctrinated with bad information, but uh, in this in the sense of washing your brain each yeah. night, of um, cleaning it and getting rid of all the accumulated uh, cellular waste products and all the accumulated toxins. Um, as one example, um, the brain literally accumulates tau proteins, taun and mm. Um, beta amyloid proteins. These are the same beta amyloid proteins that accumulate to a high degree in uh, in the context of Alzheimer's disease yeah. and, and other neurological diseases. What a lot of people don't know is we have those in the, our brain all the time and they accumulate on a daily basis. But every night while we sleep, part of what the brain does during sleep is clean all that junk out. Yeah. And so if you just understand that, like, What are the consequences of, let's say, cutting your sleep short by an hour or two from what your body actually needs each night? What are the consequences of having only 50 or 60% as deep and regenerative of quality sleep each night per hour that you're sleeping as you should be having if you had good circadian rhythm habits? So what are the consequences of those? Well, dramatically increased risk of neurological diseases, uh, increased brain fog, massively increased uh, fatigue or lower energy levels, yep. and and increased risk of cancer and neurological disease mm-hmm. and many many other consequences.
0: So yeah, and less creativity, innovation, right? Ability yeah, to adapt yeah. to stressors, less resilience on a daily yeah. basis. Exactly. I mean, poor, the the, the worse that thriving. you, the, the 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 better you you wash your brain, the less likely you are to be brainwashed. <laughs> That's <I>
1: Yep. Yeah, very, very true. Yeah, and and mood and motivation is a big factor as well. This sleep has a and circadian yeah, rhythm so impact true. on neurotransmitter regulation of things like dopamine and serotonin, and uh, which play a critical role in regulating our mood, our degree of joy, our you know whether mm. we're depressed and anxious or whether yeah. we're happy and joyful and motivated and passionate about you know doing our work um, for for the day. Like those things are all intimately tied into how deep and restful and restorative and regenerative at the cellular and mitochondrial and neurological levels was was that sleep that you just got. And that accumulates over time as a result of either optimal circadian rhythm and sleep habits or non-optimal sleep and circadian Mm -hmm. rhythm habits. And with non-optimal sleep and circadian rhythm habits, which are the norm in our society, um are you going to have increased risk of depression and anxiety and poor motivation and and um neurological disease and fatigue and and all those and brain fog and all those kinds of things yes absolutely 100% yeah, totally
0: yeah 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 and i want to finish on this note because i could talk about this all day this could be a 5 hour podcast but we'll have to have you back on to talk a lot more about some of the other topics that I, i'm interested in like red light near infrared but there is an ancient proverb that says, if you want to have great energy, watch the sunrise. And if you want to sleep well, watch the sunset. And there's certain rays or uh, you know, certain spectrums of light that come out at sunrise and sunset that also have an impact on our circadian rhythm. And can you briefly, we'll, we'll, we'll come back and do a deeper dive on this, uh, this sort of podcast, on that topic in a later podcast. But can you give us a brief overview of that and why that's such a healthy thing for people to do?
1: Yeah, the spectrum shifts uh, throughout the day. So in the morning, you have uh, a red, and the morning and the evening, you have more of a more of the red and orange and less of the yeah. blue. You also have more UVA and less UVB than compared mm-hmm. to the day. So and, and there's various physiological mechanisms that occur in response to those parts of the spectrum. Um, and they are cues to our biology. What's interesting also is that the same... Part the same wavelengths and the same spectrums of light, our brain, our brain and our body can respond differently depending on what time of day it is. So, for example, um, the if if you get um, bright light exposure, lots of blue light and UVB, and and get that midday sunlight, but if you're getting those kinds of light spectrums past the hours of like between the hours instead of middle of the day and between the hours of 11 p.m to let's say 4 a.m um that actually creates a totally different reaction in your body than getting that same exact light exposure at the correct time of day so what happens if we get it to in the middle of the night like let's say you stay up on your computer computer and with room lighting on you've got all that blue light blaring into your eyes Well, it creates a totally different reaction at the level of the brain in terms of neurotransmitters. So, for example, in the brain, we have reward circuits and we have punishment circuits. And getting that light input at night, in the middle of the night, literally activates punishment circuits in the brain that suppress dopamine levels. Okay. Whereas if you got the same exact light in the middle of the day, you're activating dopamine and you're raising dopamine levels and you're triggering reward circuitry in the brain. So there, there is this, this intimate connection between spectrums of light and wavelengths of light and, and, and human biology. And that whole realm is almost entirely neglected um, within our modern understanding of health. It's actually the topic of, of my next book is, I, I mean, I've already written one on specifically red and near-infrared light. The next book is going to be covering basically all of light and human health. And yeah. that's one of the topics of that that we're exploring is kind of this relationship yeah. morning and, yeah. and
0: mid- by it, suppressing it, and dopamine and- at night, like you were talking about, would that potentially increase the risk of addictive behaviors?
1: It's a good question. I don't know enough about addiction and the neuroscience of addiction to answer that. Mm-hmm. But I know what it is fundamentally is the body's way of trying to get you to adhere to the proper hours of circadian rhythm. Right, right. Try, trying to get you to honor the cycle, the, the natural, um, the, the Earth's natural rhythms of light and darkness. Yep. And unfortunately in, in modern society, we've become very disconnected from those rhythms. There's a great study that I love. One of my favorite studies ever is like this super primitive study that that um, it's it's almost it's such a unique study. It's almost nothing like it has ever really been done to my knowledge. But basically, they took a bunch of self-proclaimed night owls. These are people who go to bed late at night, you know, midnight, two a.m., and then they wake up late in the morning. And almost universally everybody who has that kind of pattern will say, you know, I'm just a night owl and I've always been this way. And ever since I was young, i have just, that's just, just how my body's wired. Well, they took a bunch of these night owls and they basically just sent them on a camping trip and they just put them out in the wilderness with no sources of artificial light. They just had access to firelight and they slept in a tent in the outdoors. So moonlight, the stars and firelight and the sun and um, literally within a week, a week, one week, seven yeah, days, yeah. these these people who have been trenched into that rhythm for decades switch to going to sleep before 10 a.m. and waking up at 6 a.m. <laughs> without an alarm clock, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> so in seven days, you massively yeah, shifted yeah. their sleep and wake rhythm just by removing them from the modern environment uh, You know that's rich in artificial light and with... You know kind of the sociocultural influence of it's normal to to stay awake late and stay on your computer and watch TV
0: and, and wake up late, right? Um so yeah it makes sense. I mean it's gonna be part of our ancestral blueprint. I mean there are some people that say yeah there's certain population groups that you know they have you know their their circadian rhythm tends to shift them towards you know, going to bed later and this and that. I just think back to when I was a teenager. When I was a teenager, I wanted to stay up late and I could sleep until like 10 or 11. And then at some point when I got like, you know, a job, when I was a personal trainer in my early 20s and I had to wake up at 6 a.m., it shifted it. And then it's just never gone back. Like, you know, you kind of, life forces you to shift. And then, you know, you just regulate. And I think that's a big thing. Now, I asked you about um, the addictive behaviors because I think there's a, there's, people that have addictions the the addictions tend to become worse or more highly active at night right mm-hmm. whether it's pornography drug addiction alcoholism people are typically i mean some people obviously some alcoholics are drinking in the morning but typically people are going out and they're having their booze at night you know they're involved in pornography if you look at like what time people are on looking at pornography? It's typically it's a huge shift towards you know nighttime hours, right? And maybe it's because they're free; they're not working. But there tends to be this uh, you know greater preponderance to engage in you know these pleasure-seeking activities late at night. And to me, it would make sense if your dopamine is low and you're you need this, you know, your your, your dopamine helps us have self-worth and fe- and good feelings and this and that. You're looking for something that's going to ac- excite it you know what I mean? Because it's being suppressed.
1: Yeah, yeah it's totally logical and and very plausible. Um, the only, I think, confounding variable is just like, hey, if somebody is doing those kinds of habits, they have their vices. Maybe those are the only times that they're just left alone and can right. do it. Right,
0: that's true too. Yeah.
1: <laughs> they have a wife and kids, maybe yeah. a time where they can go indulge in their alcohol or pornography or habits. It's or it's
0: more accepted, you know, like you go out to a party at night or something like yeah. that.
1: Yeah, Yeah. so there's probably some confounding variables there, but it is, I think your logic is sound and I think it is plausible that if someone's staying up in those hours and then they have this, the artificial light suppressing um, dopamine, that that could absolutely trigger them to do do behaviors that would kind of reboost dopamine. And then obviously you create a vicious cycle of staying up late and then now you're creating cycles of addiction on top of it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, interesting Ari, I would love to have you back on here soon and uh, we can talk about a lot more stuff. This has been such a great conversation. Really, I've enjoyed it. Um, What's the most exciting thing you're working on right now and where can people find out more about you and the things that you're offering, your books, your podcasts and everything like that?
1: Yeah, thank you. So my website's theenergyblueprint.com and I have programs and I have uh, four uh, premium supplements, mitochondrial formula, brain formula, And another formula called Energy Essentials. I highly recommend checking those out. And uh yeah, my next book. Well, I have two books that I'm working on right now. One is uh, gonna be published with Hay House next year, and that is called Eat for Energy. And Mm. that is um basically the all the all the science of the nutrition side of things. Um and you know so nutrition for gut health and circadian rhythm and brain health and optimizing neurotransmitters and all kinds of good stuff in there and optimizing mitochondrial health and um and then the other book which i mentioned earlier is all about the interaction between light and human health so Great. Yeah, that's what i have in the works and again the site is theenergyblueprint.com
0: sounds good and when those books are getting closer to launch let's connect again and uh, and talk all about it Yeah, I would love that. Thank you so much, Dr. Jocker. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Ari. Guys, definitely check out his website. Check out uh, his book on red light therapy, phenomenal book, Um, and also his podcast. Again, the Energy Blueprint Podcast. Lots of great information, great interviews there. So check that out and we'll see you guys on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.